We left this letter last time with Paul exhorting Timothy and the other faithful men to be meek and patient in their dealing with the false teachers. The servant of the Lord, verse 24, must not strive, gentle, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. It is, again, an appeal from the apostle to Timothy that he'd be stable and steadfast, that he'd be able to exercise self-control in the power of the Spirit of God, that though faced with opposition and faced with tremendous challenges, he'd be able to witness for Christ and truth very, very clearly. The chapter 2 makes it clear that such a spirit does not in any way involve compromise. Again, this idea of patience and meekness today is often confused with the idea of tolerance. Patience and meekness is not tolerance. It's not compromising truth. It is a resolute determination that truth must stand and error must be confronted. But it does deal with the manner in which we do confront those errors. It does not mean that if false teachers were not uh, repentant, that they should therefore not be removed from the church. Again, there's clear evidence that the church is to withdraw itself from those false teachers. And in Second and Third John, they're not to invite false teachers into their homes. There's clear lines drawn regarding the dealing with false teachers. Meekness and patience also does not mean that there is not the need for separation. We've seen that also in chapter 2. And that thought of separation continues when you turn to chapter 3. We have this lengthy list of the sins of the last perilous times. And you'll note there in verse number 2 it says, Four men, and then the list begins. And then at the end of verse number 5 it says, From such turn away. It is this idea, and I believe that turning away involves and includes the entire list. It is this idea of the people of God being separate from this world and all its sin. And separate from the errors of false teaching, which ultimately is part and parcel of this world and all of its sin. But Paul is telling Timothy, such a demeanor of patient resolution will not be easy Hence, he says in verse number one of chapter three, this know also. It's like saying to Timothy, oh, by the way, you should get this clear in your mind that these are the days in which you will have to live. You have to keep the faith in this environment. You have to keep your testimony in this environment. It will not be easy. But you can live confidently in the chaos. You can serve God in chaotic times. You can love the Lord in chaotic times. You can do that by the power of God, by the grace of God, through the scriptures of truth. This whole chapter is all about that. This idea that you can live godly in Christ Jesus, though you suffer persecution, verse number 12. That you can be confident in the scriptures, Though you suffer for these things, verse number 14, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. This chapter, I believe, is about confident Christian living in chaotic times. 
And surely it must be in your heart a desire to know how can this be. What is it to live in such a way in the days in which we live? Well, to begin with, it would help us all to have a healthy check on reality. To begin this, I say we're going to take some weeks over this. But to begin with today, we should understand the need for a healthy check in reality. Verse number three, or verse number one, sorry, chapter three. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now again, please note the continuity of thought here. Chapter 2 into 3 into 4. Chapter 2 is dealing with the presence of false teachers in the church. There are those in the church who will teach things that are not according to godliness. False doctrine. In the world, at the same time, there will be marked wickedness. Perilous times, verse number 2 and following, all this description of sin in the world. And false teaching will be part and parcel of this worldly order. That's why you get down to verse number 5, having a form of godliness, and then verse 6, for of this sort are they which creep into houses. And so what Paul is saying here is, the presence of false teaching is part of the manifestation of the chaos of the world that's against God in the last times. We'll develop that thought further, So you have false teachers in the church. They are an example, one example of the chaos in the world. And then you've got verse number four or verse number three of chapter four, where you'll see that when the world infiltrates the church, then the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. See, all this comes together. The church, false teaching. The world, wickedness all around And in the world, in the church, no desire for sound doctrine anymore. And all of these things, they come together in Paul's minds. And we should try to keep those thoughts together in our own minds. But my thought here in chapter 3, verse 1, is that it is important for Timothy and for all of us to have a clear grasp on reality. Not living a life in daydreaming. Not presuming this or that but simply having a clear grasp on what the Bible says reality actually is. Paul is teaching Timothy what life will be like during the last days. It is immediately obvious that this is relevant to Timothy. Therefore, Timothy needs to know what the last times are like. And Timothy in the first century is living in the last times. Those of you, many of you have been raised in broad evangelicalism in the U.S. over the last number of decades. And you'll have had all manner of things regarding the last times. We're waiting for the last times to come. Or we're in the last times. Or we're in the last of the last times. Well, leaving aside all of that confusion, let's be clear that Timothy was living in the last times. The last days. We know that. Because this is just one more example, and there are several in the Word of God, where the term the last days or the last times is used in such a way as it must indicate their presence and their beginning in the first century. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to show you these. There are three more references to this that we should see together. Acts chapter 2, in the verse number 17, there is the, the sermon, of course, of Peter on the death of Pentecost, and he refers to the 
message of Joel, the prophet, Acts chapter 2, verse 16. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. Well, what is that? This is that. Well, what is this? It is the gift of tongues being poured out upon the church as they prophesy. And so Peter says, this happening now in Pentecost is the fulfillment of what Joel says in the last times. It will come to pass in the last days, saith God, verse 17, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. It's a first century reality. And you get ongoing language. Again, some really struggle with the idea of verse 19 and 20. The signs and the wonders in heaven above and on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun turned to darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. But all of that is last time's events occurring throughout the realm of the last days from the first century until Christ's return. These cataclysmic events happening, signs in the heavens, but also the upheaval of nations. And I'm not proving all that now, but when you look at the language of these signs and wonders, so many of them are fulfilled in nations rising and nations falling, as we've seen the last 2,000 years. And so verse 21 is true in the first century. And it's true today that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is all last time events. And so verse 21, to be the case in Jerusalem of that day, indicates again that because the Spirit was poured out in that day, that even now, today, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. True then, and true now. That's Acts chapter 2. Evidence number 1 regarding the last times beginning in the first century. Second one then is Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and this again is perhaps the clearest of the time stamps regarding when the last days begin. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. That's a description of the Old Testament. Prophets speaking to the fathers, diverse ways, dreams and visions and direct Verbal communication from God. The Lord spoke to the prophets in that way. And they spoke to the fathers. But now verse number 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. And so it's a line in the sand if you like. Between the Old Testament age. Ending with John the Baptist. And then the New Testament era. As Christ comes into the world. And he himself speaks truth. And then the prophets, or then the apostles, sorry, are inspired to continue the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. These last days spoken unto us by his Son. One last one. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I should say this also. 2 Peter 3 has a corresponding reference in the epistle of Jude. So there are more than these four references. Three that I'm showing you plus 2 Timothy is also Again, Jude, but you've got here Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? 
Again, it's clear that as Peter deals with this issue, he's dealing with issues that are present as he writes to the scattered believers. That they're confronting these scoffers in their own day. There are those who are saying, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter directly preaches to the congregation before him, or the congregations before him, instructing them of what they need to know regarding the Lord's return. And so turning back then to Second Timothy, verse number 1 of chapter 3 again tells us that in the last days perilous times will come. Now there are various end time models that are held, and you know that in this denomination we have an open view regarding various thoughts regarding the last days before Christ's return. Some are very optimistic. Expecting a golden age, even a golden millennial age, prior to Christ's return. Others are less optimistic and expect a season of progressive wickedness and great tribulation before the end of the age. Again, I wouldn't comment on either of those without knowing some more details. Certainly my questions for both of those thoughts. But what this passage teaches is clear. Wickedness has been prevalent in every generation in the last 2,000 years. Sometimes more, sometimes less. But in every generation, wickedness has prevailed in this world. We might think there are no days as evil as our days. Listen to this. One man writes this, The conquering power of evil is on the increase. This is characteristic of the last times. Innocent babies are now not even allowed to be born. So corrupted are the moral standards. Or if born, no one educates them. So desolate are studies. Or if trained, no one enforces the training. So impotent are the laws. In fact, the case for modesty has in our time become an obsolete subject. Listen to that. Babies being destroyed before birth. Those who are born so poorly educated. Laws so wasteful and impotent. No function at all. Modesty. A forgotten subject. Those words written by Tertullian. In the late part of the 2nd or 3rd century AD. Not today. But a long, long, long time ago. Folks, there's nothing new under the sun. I suspect in the remnant church in every generation there's been the sense there can be no days worse as our days. In these last times, perilous times will come. This is what's required regarding realism. That we live in realism and not in despair. We think, and I've used the word chaos lost quite many times this morning already. And we see the chaos of this world, and I think it's an appropriate term. But the chaos of this world does not mean that God is not on the throne. Or that God is not in control. Or that God is somehow surprised by how bad things have become. Through the Apostle Paul, the Lord is telling us all that in these last days, perilous times shall come. This is what it's going to be like. And so there should not be despair, but realism. And nor should there be some undue expectation of reformation. 
a pursuit of some earthly utopia. That is not realistic in light of the word of God. My point is this. Last days living involves looking for final redemption. Looking for Christ's return. Like the Thessalonians waiting and looking for the Lord's triumphant return in glory. That is the attitude of those living in the last days waiting for Christ to come and make all things right. Now before you start throwing tomatoes at me, let me be clear of what I did not say there. I didn't say that God can't revive an area or do an unusual work at a particular time. You see, scattered throughout the 2,000 years of last days living, there have been these scenes where God has been pleased to come in unusual power and, and change a people, save a people, and in so doing, so change a localized society. You will have heard, those of you who have certainly been in the free church for a long time, will have undoubtedly heard many, many times about the work of God in 1859 in Ulster. God changed society in those days. There was such a widespread move of God that the courts had to close and the public houses closed. There was a radical change as people came to Christ Jesus. But it was localized. A similar event, of course, happened here in the Great Awakenings. You see these times of God refreshing. But I didn't say that in the last times these things couldn't come to pass. I also didn't say for a second that we should therefore be complacent with the wickedness around us. Hey, Sarah, Sarah. It's the way it is. We're told these troubled, perilous times are going to come. Nothing we do about it. I didn't say that. And that would be completely wrong-headed. We should not be complacent with wickedness around us. We should call out the tragedy of man's sin. Didn't say that we shouldn't try to reform society. To put the end to abortion. To educate children. To ensure laws are powerful, justice justice takes place. All of these things are right and proper in a biblical worldview. All I'm simply saying is what Paul says, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. It is a healthy dose of realism. But secondly, there is this heavy catalogue of rebellion. As a preacher, one of the most difficult things to preach are long lists. It's one of those things, hard to organize, hard to think how to deal with them and present them to people. You have 19 characteristics here that mark out the world in the last times. Perilous times. The word perilous itself is is a fascinating word. It's only used in one other place in the New Testament. And it's used to describe in Matthew chapter 8, two men possessed with devils come out of the tombs who were exceeding fierce. It's the word. Fierce times, perilous times, dangerous times, times of spiritual danger. You know, the word shouldn't surprise us. We believe that according to Ephesians chapter 2, those who are not alive in Christ Jesus are walking according to the prince of the power of the air. We believe the devil's influence is seen in a world outside of Christ. And so therefore we should expect to see that in those who do not know the Lord, that there are this manifestation of devilish behavior in these devilish times. 
fierce, violent, difficult times. But as we examine this closely, I think we can determine the foundation of this problem. If I can give you three isms to kind of summarize this list. There's the ism of narcissism and materialism and hedonism. Narcissism, men shall be lovers of their own selves. Materialism, they are covetous. Hedonism, they love pleasure more than God. Those are the three kind of standout features that certainly demonstrate these last days problems. I think if you were a social scientist and you're studying this world, you can see these things manifesting in different degrees in different periods. I think post-World War II, again, the Western nations, I include UK and the US at the same time, there was undoubtedly an advance of materialism. There was some degree of prosperity, and money became gods, and undoubtedly there are those who are marked by great covetousness. It's also true that you get to the 60s and 70s, you see an advance in hedonism. Free love, no consequence. Live and let live. And then when you get to our day and age, surely narcissism is the god of today. The God of self. I must be free to be who I am. Whoever I am, whatever I am, whoever I decide to be, that is the God of today. It is a God of absolute narcissism. But those three things that sort of summarize this list to some degree, they all have the same common foundation, and that is in a misplacing of the affections. Love is the central thought here. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, and lovers of money rather than loving the Lord. Love is that central thought, and there's a very important principle to consider again. When men violate the first commandment, everything else falls apart. We are to have no other gods before the Lord. And if God is not first and central in our lives, then anything else is possible. When man leaves God aside, then this is what follows. I plead with you. Young people, please give me your eyes right now. I plead with you. To live a life that God is first. That you don't live in the fear of man, the fear of your peers, or the fear of human consequence, but you live in the fear of God, loving the Lord above all else. That is the only foundation whereby you can go into life and be confident and stable in the chaos of these perilous times. Any other foundation will find yourself at some point in the midst of all of this chaos of these 19 features of ungodly living. You see, the first table is understood in the Lord's summary. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And it's from that that then comes the loving of neighbor as ourselves. But loving God must come first. And that's why we sang the hymns we sang this morning. To to bring your attention to the fact you have testified in your heart that you love the Lord. 
And that is vital and foundational to living in this world because this list is a catalogue of evil. It's a violation of both tables of the law, first and second table. It's a catalogue that gives evidence to God taking his hand off society. The commentators have rightly pointed out that the list here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is parallel to the language used in Romans chapter 1. You turn back there, please. You'll see it. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but you'll see in Romans chapter 1 there are several of the terms that are used. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's also used in Romans chapter 1. You have here, let me just give you the example of verse number 30. Backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, that's truth breakers in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so you see, there's overlapping terms. But in the context of Romans chapter 1, it's a fact that God is revealing his wrath in the world as he gives mankind, mankind over to their own foolish hearts. They suppress the truth and righteousness, and thus they live in violation of God's. There are these terms that are used. And so we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let me just highlight some of the features of this list. There is arrogance towards God. See, when you do not love the Lord, when you don't fear the Lord then you're manifesting a heart of arrogance towards the Lord. And so it says here, they are covetousness. Covetous, verse number two. We're told in Colossians 3, that is idolatry. You've got the fact that they are boasters, proud, blasphemers. There is this heart towards the Lord. The word boasters is particularly interesting. It's a word that was used for those who wandered about from place to place. We were talking traveling salesmen. Snakeskin oil. Vain boasting. Let me sell you the latest big thing. No foundation. Vain boastful imaginations. That's the idea that's used here. It's this idea that people are proud of their own understanding, their own imaginations, but they have no thought of God's. Proud, assertions, opinions without any foundations. Hence in verse number four, they're described as being heady, high-minded. Again, the word traitors is used in verse number four. Again, does it have the idea of being a traitor towards God, rebellion against God? Well, more likely traitors in society. But as Paul mentions that, he then makes the point that they are heady and high-minded. And arrogance towards God will then lead to social disorder. Arrogance, whereby they are unthankful and ungodly. Verse number two again. All of these terms, and Paul is interspersing the language here. Give us a picture of the sadness, no thought of God. There is no God in all of their thoughts. There is arrogance towards God. There is then insurgence in the home. They are disobedient to parents. But they're only children. Don't you hear that language? It's not the world's mindset today. Look, you can't be too hard on them. They're only children. Without seeing that when there's insurgents in the home, 
It is a manifestation of the world under the control of the devil. Children, it is no small thing for you to disobey your parents. Oh yes, if they tell you to disobey the Lord, you obey the Lord and not your parents. But when your parents are seeking to lead you in the things of God, it is a very serious thing to disobey your parents. Foundational to society. Wickedness begins in society as the home and the authority in the home is eroded. Please note this. So towards God in worship, there is arrogance. In the home, there is insurgence and insolence. And in society, there's cruelty. Verse 3 and 4 is a tremendous list of the features of an ungodly world without any fear of God. Without natural affection. It's a difficult word in terms of its translation. It has the idea of a kindred fellowship or kindred working together. This idea of neighborliness. Kindred. It may refer to what happens in the home. This idea of a loving brother and sister. Or perhaps more in society. And it's saying here there's, there's not this creation ordinance. That we are mankind. We're put into this world. That dominion over the world. We're not the animals. We're man. And there should be this mutual working together in society. And so without natural affection. Has the idea of the breakdown of civil order. Man against man. Destroying each other. For their own selfish ends. Hence you see the terms that are used. Truce breakers. They will not keep their word or their oath. They are false accusers. They'll go to court and bear false witness. The one against the other. They are those who are incontinent. There is no control upon their lusts and on their violence. They are fierce. They despise the good. And they are traitors marked by civil disorder. This is the world. In which we live. These are the marks of the last days. You see. I know you you folks. And I I certainly join with you. We are in the right of the political debates. And we think to ourselves. Language of. Injustice. That's the woke language of the left. They misuse it. They do. They misuse it. And they misapply it. But cruelty and violence and injustice, we ought to see those things too and realize those things are real and they're a manifestation that we're living in the last days. This is what happens in perilous times. Man is unkind and cruel to man. Lies predominate. Violence is the norm. And so you get the events in our own state You think of Philadelphia on any given day. You're seeing verses 3 and 4 being wrought out in the streets of the cities. These are the last days. Sins of thought and word and deed. Sins that are true regardless of political position. Regardless of gender, men or women. All ethnic groups. This list does not spare any for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we see this being manifest in the world in which we live. And the state of the world in which we live is directly related to the lack of love for the Lord. That's the foundational problem here. We're living in a world where people do not love the Lord. 
And so the obvious solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not being simplistic. That is realizing that if the problem here is a lack of love for the Lord, then we know that we love him because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4. That how do we come to love the Lord? Because we come to see by the Spirit of God that God manifests and demonstrates his love as Christ hung upon the cross for sinners. And we come to see that we understand this is the love of God. And having seen God's love, we then come to love the Lord. His Spirit works in our souls and our hearts are changed. And we no longer love self more than God or money more than God or pleasure more than God. We're no longer narcissists and materialists and hedonists. We're the children of God. And God delivers us from this evil world by his glorious grace. We cannot properly improve society by education or by social reform. You know what those things do without Christ? They move people from one category of sin to another. What happens? So you say, well, these people, they're, they're marked by addiction and drug addicts. We need to educate them and bring them out of that addiction. And so we, we try to patch them up. And we say, well, we should really give them a good job. We should make sure that, they, that they're, they're working and earning well. And so we say, leave off the God of your pleasure. Here's another God to choose. It's called money. Make that your God instead. And we move and we shuffle society around from one sin to another. But we do not give them the Lord's. This problem is a lack of love for Christ Jesus. And therefore it's a spirit of God changing the hearts of men. That brings people to the right position before the Lord. Before finishing for today. There's one thing we should note. This is the world in which we live. And this is the world. Which we are not to be conformed to. Remember Romans chapter 12? Do not be conformed to this world. What's this world? This is this world. Don't be conformed to it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The language of Romans chapter 12 is the idea of the world is trying to squeeze us to look like it. That the world influences the church. You should be more like we are. Truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fears, despise of those that are good. That's what we should be looked like. We see this particular concern in verse number five that we'll come back to next week, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Am I wrong in suggesting that there is this constant pressure in the church to conform to the world? That the things we see in these verses are indeed often manifest in the professed church of Christ. I wish it was the case that we could look at this list and say, that's only sin for those outside this building. But the very same sins are in our hearts and our lives at times, aren't they? Do we not find ourselves so influenced by the world that we become like the world? Many Christians today have believed in a God and they've adopted a self-sent religion. They love themselves so much that they're going to follow a God of their own imagination. God that is man-centered, not man being God-centered. 
And so in our modern church today, there's this idea that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And God's agenda is to ensure that you're happy and feel good about yourself. God's in our lives for just that end. Material, temporal happiness and success. God is in our lives for his glory. And we get rid of all of this notion if we realize that we live for God's glory, not for ourselves. And so I close today with this simple exhortation. Love the Lord, ye his saints. If you're not going to be conformed to this world, you must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the word of God comes with a clear obligation to love the Lord. Wait a minute, preacher, that's an emotion. I can't love the Lord. No, in the Bible, loving the Lord is a command. It goes back to Moses' days. As he speaks to the people of God before they enter the promised land, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days. See, what is it to love the Lord? It involves commitment to the Lord's glory. Commitment to his cause. And a glad obedience to his command and to his will. Love the Lord, you saints. You only do it by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God. But that fact does not remove the obligation you have. Beware love of self. Beware love of money. Beware love of pleasure. Love the Lord, ye his saints. And if you're here today, and you realize that there are things in this list and they dominate your life, they describe you to a T, your heart is just like this, then you need the Christ of God. You need the forgiveness that he offers in the gospel. The God of mercy upon our souls in these perilous times. Amen. Let's seek God's face together in prayer. We'll come back again to this next Lord's Day. Uh, working our way through this section piece by piece. Let's all pray. Eternal God and Father, we confess again how difficult it is just to to work our way through this list and this material. And we pray that you'd help us to be clear in our minds as the days in which we live, as the troubles we face, and that by your grace we would indeed love thee above all else. Forgive us, dear Father, that at times we have been conformed to this world. Help us to fight every inclination of the flesh to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in likeness to him, to bless the word to each and every hearer, Help us to pray for our neighbours. Help us to bring the gospel to their attention. And use our ministry to that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.